Okay, turn in your Bibles to the book of Joshua again. I was hoping to get through verse uh, chapter 19, but I think we'll probably just do chapter 18. Um, I mean, we're taking pretty big chunks at a time, so <laughs> we're making good progress through this book. Um, Joshua chapter 18, and uh, let's get back into the mindset of the book of Joshua. Um, really, this section after about uh, Joshua 13 and on, it is um, almost like a legal record or legal, legal documentation of who owns what. Um, one thing to note is you'll see that when it comes to allotting the promised land, which if you look on the back of your handout is, is that um, area you see there, um, that there's a lot of town names. That's why this is a little bit complicated at times to understand because you're essentially looking at a list of cities and not always territorial boundaries, you know, this river, that river, um, this mountain range. A lot of times you're getting into the names of towns. And we'll talk about in a second why that is. Um, but just so you know, the, the overall theme of especially these passages are really the fulfillment of hundreds of years of promises that have been made. And so when you read it, yeah, it's kind of a, a dry list. It's, it's almost like reading through, um, do they even have Thomas Guides anymore? But, you know, you, you know, the back and just have like a list of streets. And, you know, who goes just back there unless you're having a hard time sleeping? Just read the street names or something like that. Um, it can feel like that. But you have to understand for the Jewish people, this is the culmination of hundreds of years of, of promises. And hundreds of years, if you remember just before this, they were enslaved in Egypt. So it's not as if they were patiently waiting. They were suffering and uh, enduring those trials in Egypt. So this is... Um, homecoming. This is, um, if you were, you know, born in a very poor family, and all of a sudden you get rich and come into a lot of money, you buy a gigantic ranch with a huge mansion and a, you know, five-story hot tub or whatever, and you're entering into it, and you're just in awe of all that you suddenly have from having nothing. You know, that's the sense of it. I know it's a little bit, it's a little bit different than that. Um, but you have to kind of uh, embrace the expectation and the fulfillment of promises and prophecies that is here. Uh, and then also then the disappointment when things don't go as they should, which is what we'll talk about today. So with all that said, I'm going to just, as we've been doing in these uh, chunks, larger chunks of Joshua, I'm going to uh, read through verses out of the chapter or the passages that I think uh, it's helpful to have a little bit of background on to understand or uh, where there is some, um, I think, application that can be made of the passage. All right. So uh, here in this case, actually, it's helpful to understand a little bit what's going on in verse one even. So I'll read that for you. Joshua chapter 18, verse one. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. So uh, if you recall, it doesn't say it right here, but their home base was at Gilgal. Gilgal is just across the Jordan. Remember, they came in from the east side of the Jordan. They crossed it and going west, and they, they um, conquered a city 
called Gilgal, and that's where they set up their home camp. And so they've been there. Almost everything they've done, that's been home base. So all the conquests and everything, they've been coming out of Gilgal. So the large portion of the people have been there. So it's significant when they finally up and move the whole congregation into Shiloh. Uh, Shiloh is 12 miles south of Shechem, and it's in the heart, really, of the Promised Land. If you look kind of in the middle, um, you'll find Shechem. You can go south. Um, a little bit, and you'll see Shiloh there. Um, Alan can help you find it <laughs> if you need to, if you need help, huh? It's in Ephraim. Yes, it's in Ephraim. Uh, so this is a symbolic. Um, this is essentially going from like the edge of the promised land to saying, "No, we are home. This is home. We're finally moving in." And the most significant um, piece of furniture that they have is a little something called the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was this uh, acacia wood box. Yeah, yeah, like if you've ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, honestly, it's a pretty decent depiction of what the Ark of the Covenant would look like. It's acacia wood um, overlaid with gold. The lid had two figures of angels with their wings extended, touching each other. And uh, that was on the lid of it. And this box contained within it not just the Ten Commandments, like the stone tablets that Moses brought down from Sinai, actually the second version of them, because the first one he, he, he broke when the people had been um, worshiping an idol. And in his, in his anger, he broke them. Um, but uh, it has that set of the Ten Commandments, a jar of manna. Remember, they were fed with manna in the wilderness. And Aaron's staff that budded, which was uh, a reference to um, the, the Levitical priesthood, um, the choosing of Aaron and his lineage to be the priest. Okay, so you don't necessarily need to get into all that, but uh, essentially these items were kept within the box uh, or the ark, and wherever they went as they wandered after they created it, when they exited Egypt, for 40 years as they wandered, whenever they camped somewhere, they would set up the ark, but they didn't just set it up in the middle of nowhere. There was an entire uh, compound, a temporary compound, um, that they would set up around it, where they would put the ark in its own room, and that room was in a bigger room, and that bigger room or tent was within an entire compound, and that compound was where the priests would offer sacrifices and worship. It was essentially a mobile temple. Right? This is before they had a temple. It was a mobile temple because there are mobile people until this point. Um, the temple wouldn't be created until the time of Solomon. So they would carry this thing around. So significant. You know, this is the most important piece of furniture they had. Right? It needed to make this trip. It meant something when this piece of furniture finally made it over to Shiloh um, because it's the most important thing that they had with them. So they're finally home right? Um, it's a statement of God's faithfulness and their prom- the promise he made to bring them into the land. Now, as we said before, I know it says here that the land lay subdued before them, but even the verses afterwards are going to communicate that does not mean that they have uh, driven out all of the pagan nations that are still in the land. We already talked about that last week and probably almost like every week in the past uh, couple months, we've said, you know, they didn't drive out everyone, though. They did not eliminate all the uh, vestiges of the Canaanites, for example. And so while the land is subdued in the sense that uh, no one's trying to resist or fight against the Israelites at this point, they haven't fully 
uh, completed the command to drive out every single last uh, pagan person there. Um, and there's a similar refrain. There's a similar reason for it that we're going to talk about a little bit about today. We see it in verse 2. There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land, which Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has given you? Provide three men from each tribe, and I will send them out that they may set out and go up and down the land. They shall write a description of it with a view to their inheritances, and then come to me. They shall divide it into seven portions. Judah shall continue in his territory on the south, and the house of Joseph that is Ephraim Manasseh, shall continue in their territory on the north, and you shall describe the land in seven divisions and bring the description here to me. And I will cast lots for you here before Yahweh our God. The Levites have no portion among you, for the priesthood of Yahweh is their heritage. And Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan eastward, which Moses, the servant of Yahweh, gave them. So we've We've already covered, why are there seven tribes left? Well, we've covered so far the inheritance of Gad and Reuben, which for the most part, are, which is entirely east of the Jordan. You can look on your map. We've covered that Manasseh, they got half their tribe on that side of the River Jordan, half their tribe on this side of the River Jordan. And then we have uh, Judah, um, which has already received its allotment. Um, so is the math correct here? You got Judah, Ephraim, Manasseh, Gad, Reuben. That's five of 12. So the other seven, um, which will be uh, Benjamin, Simeon, Issachar, Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali, Dan, right, are remaining. So hopefully the math adds up there. Um, So those seven tribes have not gone into and cleared out the land for them to lay hold of it and take possession of it. And apparently quite some time had passed for Joshua to have to give this rebuke. What is taking you so long? Now, there's no reason given why they had not done this yet. I mean, we can, I think we can interject some ideas um, that, that I think are, you know, they're very reasonable, that they're maybe tired or afraid you know, tired from, they had been fighting already, so they're just tired to go out fighting some more. They might be afraid um, uh, of actually going out and trying to fight again against these Canaanites again. Maybe they'll lose this time. Um, they haven't actually shown a, necessarily a whole lot of faithfulness all the time. Uh, or maybe they're just comfortable. You know, we kind of liked it over here. We, you know, why, why uh, rock the boat any, any? So, um, I think those, whatever the case might be, they just didn't have motivation to continue to fight in order to gain their inheritance. Even though, even though God had promised victory. And not only that, they had experienced victory. There's no reason not for them not to go. In other words, whether it's laziness, whether it's fear, whether it's being comfortable, the real heart attitude behind Whatever's happening here, whatever excuse they might give, the ultimate reason for their uh, lack of going into the land is actually unbelief. It's faithlessness. When you really come down to it, they might give you whatever reason, but it's faithlessness. It's unbelief. And of course, I think their experience is not that foreign to us individually as Christians. I mean, if... if uh, 
I don't want to make it seem like I'm assuming you're going to sin. But next time you sin, <laughs> next time you sin, and you think about it afterwards, you know, if, I were to, if you were to call me and say, you know, Pastor, I screwed up again, or I call you, you know, uh, I screwed up again, and you were to say, well, why? Why did you do it? I might give a lot of reasons why. <laughs> I might say, well, I was tired. You know, I, I just, you know, I was afraid of what someone else was going to do to me. It was out of worry, anxiety, concern, uh, is laziness, whatever it is. You know what's ultimately going to come down to every single time? Faithlessness. <laughs> just not believing in the Lord, either in the blessing or the, 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 the chastening and the rebuke. Um, this is something I think all Christians face. Uh, I, I just wanted to pull up a few verses just to show that uh, while this happened, you know, over 3,000 years ago and the struggle to get all the Israel, or Canaanites out of the land, um, we still face the same kinds of faithlessness and discouragements and unbelief at times. Um, Galatians 6, verse 9. Galatians, of course, is a book all about um, rebuking those who thought that circumcision was a requirement to be a Christian, that there was a work you had to do beyond just believing in the gospel and turning away from your sins that was necessary in order for you to become a Christian. But uh, what's interesting is as he talks about that, um, you might think that you don't need to do any works at all. (laughs) You know, if works don't get you into heaven, why do any works? But Paul kind of subtly rebukes that. But he says it in an interesting, interesting way. In Galatians 6, 9, he says, Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. In the context, he's just talking about, you know, it is hard to not fall into legalism. You know, works, works, works. It's hard actually to not fall into antinomianism, which is a fancy word of saying, you know, I don't have to, no one can judge me. I can do whatever I want. God's going to forgive me. It's a lot of work to do that. So we should bear each other's burdens and we should continue to do good for each other. But that can be tiring to walk a tightrope. I actually imagine one of the hardest things to do in terms of like body discipline is walking on like a tightrope. Because really, I, I'm, I, I know you have to engage like kind of your entire body and all of your muscles in order to walk across. And all you're trying to do is walk in a straight line. Um, but of course, it's because if you make a little mistake this way, you're dead. If you make a little mistake this way, you're dead. But I kind of imagine the Christian life like that as well. It seems like a very simple thing just to walk a, a righteous way, you know, live a righteous life. Don't fall into legalism. Don't fall into antinomianism. But it takes a lot of focus and concentration. It takes a lot of effort and, and your, your muscles being, uh, being attentive to what all of your muscles are doing. And so it's, it's not something that, um, or it is something that can easily make you tired to just be a consistent Christian that, that tries not to screw up a lot. Um, so I pre- now I know why I've been missing work. Huh? <laughs> now I know why I've been missing work. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, well, it is tiring to try and live a righteous life. But then, Paul, I mean, it's so, it's so good to say, don't grow weary of doing good. I know it can be tiresome just to think of doing good and helping people and bearing each other's burdens, but don't get tired of it. Um, and it's the same kind of thing. Again, like, you know, Israelites, 
you got a good work to do here. You know, you're, you're taking, laying hold of the promise and don't get tired of that. Don't weary in doing that good work. Well, Christian, um, if you need encouragement, um, yeah, it can be tiresome. But notice the reward. In due season, we will reap if we do not give up. Reap what? Well, we know from other passages that there is a reward for those who walk faithfully. We'll get heaven. We'll have glory. We'll be seated at the right hand of God. We'll enjoy every spiritual blessing. And so there is a reason to do it. There's a motivation to it. Don't grow weary. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 15. Romans eight fifteen. Paul writes, <clears throat> For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Notice he says that we haven't received the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. In other words, the natural condition of every person who is not free in Christ is to have fear, fear of death. Fear of what other people can do to you. Fear of tomorrow. Fear of, you know, the disapproval of your, of your parents. Fear of your spouse leaving you. Fear of your spouse hurting you. It's just fear everywhere you turn. Fear of nuclear war. Fear of everything. But as Christians, we don't have a spirit of slavery to those things. You're, you're afraid of those things because you can only hope in those things. You're the approval of others, your career, the finances coming in, your health being good. You're enslaved to those things. But as soon as you become a Christian and you put your trust in Jesus, you're a child of God, you're going to be taken care of. You don't have a spirit of fear. You don't need to fall back into a spirit of fear. But what tempts us to fall into fear? Paul's talking in the context of suffering. When suffering or persecution comes, we're tempted Again, to fall back into a fear. Well, what are those who want to persecute me going to do to me? You know, if it's the government persecuting you, what if they take away, you know, my, my livelihood? What if they take away my house? What if they take away my kids? A lot of fear. But Paul is saying, you don't have that fear because you don't have that spirit of slavery anymore. Don't fall into fear again. Don't let that be an excuse for lack of faithfulness for a lack of obedience to the Lord. And again, there's a reward. There's an expectation that one day we will inherit all that God has to give to Christ, who is his son, because we have the same spirit as sons and daughters, we will receive all that Christ receives. So don't fall back into that spirit of fear. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, he's speaking to the rich and the comfortable. And he says to them in 1 Timothy 6, 17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. In other words, Paul is telling Timothy who's a pastor in a relatively wealthy church in Ephesus to make sure that the rich people don't feel too comfortable in their rich lifestyle on this side of heaven. That just because they're a 
rich and comfortable. It doesn't mean that they um, have arrived. It doesn't mean they have nothing left to do. It doesn't mean also that you sell everything and just become another poor person. No, the rich can be uncomfortable by being generous and sharing, not necessarily making themselves not rich anymore. That's not the point of it. But to consider that they can't find their comfort in their riches. So Bible doesn't say you can't be rich, but there's certainly a challenge. Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And it's not because, you know, inherently rich people are evil, but it's so often those who are rich are comfortable and who don't want to let go of their riches if the Lord requires it of them. And so here again, uh, another example where we are maybe not so far off. Maybe some of those Israelites were fairly comfortable where they were. You know, our needs are getting met. We don't feel like we need to go and go conquering some Canaanites. And so why can't we just stay where we're at? But uh, comfort is not uh, an idol that we want to serve. It's an easy one to serve because literally you just, you know, it's comfort is a weird idol to serve because it's kind of um, means you get to sit more and do nothing. You know what I mean? Like it seems odd because I don't, I'm not serving comfort if I'm sitting on my couch and just relaxing all the time and never lift a finger for anyone or anything for any reason. But it is a harsh idol because it means you have to willfully turn an eye to the things that are going on around you. Um, There are very uncomfortable things happening in our world, in our neighborhoods that Christians need to be a part of and need to speak into and need to share with others about, both materially and in the preaching of the gospel. But the last thing we can do is be comfortable. And again, there is a promise that those who um, don't put their comforts first, they will be, in a sense, rich in heaven. The ones who are uncomfortable here on earth will be comfortable in heaven. Those who are uh, maybe have less here on earth will have more in heaven. So we have a motivation. We have a reason. This is very, some, again, I think these are common things that we experience in our faith. To grow tired in doing good or to uh, fall back into fear or to be uh, tempted by comforts. Just like um, the Israelites perhaps were as well. Um, I'm sure all of us have experienced that dry spell in our faith or hitting a a plateau where we don't seem to be um, really growing as much, um, to fall into a rut or routine. But again, often it's because ultimately it's unfaithfulness. It's unbelief. We're letting the fact that God has promised something for us, something good for us, become an excuse to disobey rather than a motivation to obey. Or another way to think of it is um, we can have a wonderful doctrine of God's sovereignty that, that is, God is so sovereign, even if we do nothing, he accomplishes his purpose, and so we do nothing. Or even if we sin, we know God is still going to accomplish his purpose. Well, that is a, a blasphemous way to view God's sovereignty when his sovereignty is supposed to be seen as an assurance that whatever you do, by faith, is going to be rewarded. These Israelites, they couldn't just say, well, God promised this, so we don't have to go and fight the Canaanites. No, if God promises, that means that when you do go fight the Canaanites, you will have victory. So go and fight them. That is the Christian life. Um, And if you are tired, if you are fearful, if you are comfortable, um, there's also something to say for someone having um, the relationship with you, like Joshua, rebuking the Israelites for not going, to 
sometimes gently, sometimes a little more bluntly to say, hey, brother, you, you know, are you going through a tough time? How can I help you? How can I motivate you? How can I remind you? How can I come alongside you so that we might both uh, continue to uh, trust the Lord and grow in our faith? So it's just one thing that um, I thought of as, we were, as I was looking through Joshua 18. Uh, well, Joshua does not just kind of prod them and poke them. He also very kindly gives them a plan, which also goes a long way to helping uh, perhaps unmotivated folks in your life, or if it's you, um, to, to look in the mirror and say, maybe I need a plan. I really appreciate Joshua's plan here because I, I like when we see in the Bible examples of wisdom being applied. Um, in other words, um, you might... Not everything that you experience in life is going to be detailed in the Bible. You know, when you encounter this situation, the Bible says this. We kind of want it to be that um, all-encompassing and exhaustive. That any problem you have, you know, Pastor Yuri can look it up in the concordance or Google it and find the exact answer. What college should I go to? Who should I marry? Lots of these things are not explicitly in the Bible. And so uh, we have to apply wisdom. And I think that's something that Joshua does here very well. And so I'm thankful whenever the Bible gives us an example of, you know, sometimes you just have to apply some maturity, some sense, and some wisdom. And so that's what Joshua does here in order to motivate the Israelites. He says, take three men from each of the tribes. And this probably means those seven tribes, not all 12, um, but the seven that haven't um, went out and conquered the land. So 21 guys, you go and divide the land into seven portions as evenly and equitably as you can. And then uh, we're going to cast lots so that we'll assign the remaining tribes to an allotment. All right. So that part will be uh, God's choice because the, the using of lots, as we said before, is just symbolizing we're trusting God to uh, give each tribe uh, and put each tribe where they need to be. But your job is to, you need to go out to that land, you need to survey it, and you need to cut it up in seven equitable portions. Now, when you look at the map, it might seem kind of confusing because you've got some land masses that are bigger, some are smaller, and how could you possibly consider that even? But understand that the way it was being divided wasn't just by like acreage or land mass, but by the quality of the land itself, and more importantly, the number of and the quality of towns within that land. So remember that Israel is basically a desert with a climate. It's, it's very similar to Southern California. We're almost at the same, is this latitude? Yeah, same latitude uh, as Israel. So it's very interesting that we share a lot of uh, common um, uh, geography or topography and even climate. So they're a desert just like we are here. And without irrigation networks, freeways, you know, railroads, you know, you're going to build a town where there are some natural resources like water or access to water, where the land is, uh, um, or where the land is farmable and there's good quality soil. It's not too uh, steep and all those things. So those are the kinds of criteria that these 21 men were to uh, go describe and then use as a measure to create these equal portions of land. And it's kind of ingenious because it really ensured that they would divide the land evenly, right? If they knew that they're going to divide it up, but who gets what is going to be up to the Lord or from our perspective, like random, 
so to speak, they have an incentive to make each portion as equal as they can tell as possible. Again, not in terms of like the, 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 the acreage, but in the quality of the land. So it's, it's like, um, you know, you ever do the uh, I cut, you choose kind of system of cutting a cookie, <laughs> right, with the kids? So you have one of the cookies, one of the, the, the kid with the cookie, you know, she's going to cut it, but the other person is going to choose, right? So what's that person going to do? You know, you're going to get a ruler out, and you're going to make sure each half of the cookie is exactly the same with the exact same number of chocolate chips and everything, right? So it's kind of like that. He's essentially telling them, well, you don't know who's going to get what. So, you know, they have a huge incentive. Okay, we need to make sure that I would be happy getting any one of these pieces of land. So there's a common sense there. There's, uh, there's a really genius um, system that Joshua puts in place, and it's not in contradiction to the Lord's command, because the Lord did commands for the land to be allotted uh, by lot, and, um, <clears throat> and this is uh, nothing that Joshua is doing here is trying to um, resist or push against God's way as if God's way didn't work, so now we got to do it Joshua's way. No, Joshua was doing something that was intended to be <clears throat> and was completely um, in harmony with God's own design for how the land was to be allotted. And I think we need to be uh, appreciative, actually. We need to appreciate that God's divine sovereignty isn't always contrary to our own application of wisdom and good sense. Uh, again, it's not as the Bible has a complete guide to how to do any, everything. Um, book of Proverbs, sure, there's a lot of great instruction for children in the book of Proverbs, but it's not an exhaustive list. It doesn't tell you what to do when your kid's addicted to an iPad or something, right? So you've got to apply God's word in a consistent manner. Uh, and so I'm thankful when the word of God contains these examples of God-given wisdom that's very contextual. I mean, even Joshua 18 this isn't giving you an absolute mandate. If you ever find yourself like as a surveyor or you got to cut up land or something like that, this is obviously not saying you got to do it exactly this way. You get 21 guys and all this stuff. No, it's not intended to give that kind of instruction at all. Um, it's not even saying this is how you should divide up an inheritance. You know, your great aunt uh, Martha dies or something and you need to divide the inheritance. Well, you know, what we got to do is something like Joshua did. I mean, maybe if that works in your situation, but Christian maturity is often a matter of just making choices that accomplish goals in a godly way without disobeying the word of God, trying to honor him both with the process and the outcome. That's what Christians do. We're not just pragmatists, whatever, we need this result, so whatever we can do to get the result, we do that. We're not people that also don't care about the outcome, I don't care if the outcome's fair or not, you know, we need to do it um, this way, because this way honors the Lord. Well, we, we are trying always to understand how we can do everything God's way, and get results that also honor God. Um, an example, we don't have to turn there for sake of time, but in Acts chapter 6, early church, there's an issue of the widows needing to get um, their um, uh, food. And uh, early church, the, 
the time of the early church, widows were kind of the low rung on the, the social status, and they didn't have social security and food stamps and all those things. If you were a widow, you were basically a beggar. And so the early church cared about these widows, but there's a certain issue going on where certain widows are being ignored, certain widows are, are getting a benefit first or only. And so the early apostles essentially say, and there's nowhere in the Bible that says to do it like this, but choose some men who are full of the spirit and of faith from amongst yourselves and let them handle it. It's just a wise way to address it. Essentially, they created the office of deacons to address the situation. Well, there's never really ever been something like deacons in the whole history of redemption up until that point. Was it contrary to the word of God? Not at all. Did it accomplish God's purposes in a godly way? Yes, yes. And so they did it. So you get examples like this all over the scriptures, but I think it's a good one for us to see here with Joshua. You say, that's a great idea, Joshua. There's room for that. (laughs) There's room for you to think of good ideas that serve God's purposes, um, that, that aren't slavish, like I can only do explicitly what the Bible says to do. So that's something, again, just as reading through, I appreciated that, and it seemed to work out just fine, because we get into immediately after the inheritances. So the inheritance for Benjamin, we'll kind of really just close talking about this tribe of Benjamin and who they are. You can look at the map and get an idea of where their territory is there, but essentially you just have a lot of um, place names and and things like that in the rest of Joshua 18, which if you want to read, I will entrust, um, I'll trust you to read that yourself. Who is Benjamin? Benjamin was the youngest son of Jacob. Remember, all these tribes all come from one man, Jacob. All 12 members of the tribe of Israel, they all come from Jacob. And Ben, huh? Isaac's son. So it goes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So Isaac would be grandfather of Benjamin. Yeah, that's good. Thanks for clarifying or bringing that up. So Benjamin is the youngest son of Jacob. If you remember the whole story about Joseph and his brothers and how they despised him and all that stuff, Benjamin is the son that is born after Joseph uh, is presumed to be killed. He's the youngest son out of them all. Uh, and <laughs> you have a, an interesting um, prophecy given to him. So what we've been doing, if you recall before, is we've been going to the prophecy, uh, the, the blessing that Jacob, he's dying. He's going to bless all of his children. What's the blessing that he gives to Benjamin? Um, you can turn there if you want. It's in Genesis 49, 27. So Jacob, in his dying moments, he has all of his kids um, there. And, <laughs> and he says this to Benjamin, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey, and at evening dividing the spoil. Like, is that a, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? <laughs> what, am I, what am I supposed to do with that? Um, Simeon is even harsher because it intersects with Levi, and we'll get to that later. But, you know, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey, and at evening, dividing the spoil. Now, some of that you have to understand in the, in the Jewish culture, remember, the day starts with the evening. 
the evening and morning the first day, evening and morning the second day in Genesis 1. So in a way, if you say in the morning something, in the evening something, that perhaps I think that's the clue to understanding this, but that is maybe like saying before and after, all right? Before and after. This is the way things were before. This is the way things are going to be later. And typically, it's going to either go from bad to good or good to bad, you know, the before and after. So which way is this? Is this going from a good situation to a bad situation or a bad situation to a good situation? Well, a ravenous wolf, we'll start there. What is a ravenous wolf? Well, I mean, it's just an aggressive creature. Um, The tribe of Benjamin, indeed, they became a very warlike tribe, despite being not only the youngest, you know, uh, son, and therefore the youngest tribe. They also ended up being one of the smallest, but they were known for having very fierce warriors and archers and swordsmen and all these things. So they're very warlike. Um, they were very dangerous despite their small size, just like a ravenous wolf. It speaks here of in the morning devouring the prey. Um, and there's kind of a sense that a ravenous wolf and the devouring prey, it's, it's almost like just... Um, carnage, aggression. It's almost senseless, okay? And uh, there is a story in Judges uh, 19 uh, of how the tribe of Benjamin almost caused a civil war. Judges 19 through 21 is one of the most awful, graphic, weird stories of of the Bible. Um, Boy, I'm going to give you the summary version. There's a, a Levite who has a concubine. Again, the time of Judges, by the way, everyone's doing right in their own eyes. So in this time frame, everyone's awful. No one's doing the right thing. No one's really the good guy here. So I'm going to tell the story, and you're going to be like, who, who's the good guy? Nobody, all right? So this Levite has a concubine. He's traveling back um, to Judah, but he stops by Gibeah, which is in Benjamin, right? Now this old man sees him traveling and decides to be nice and take him, this Levite and his concubine, to his home. Well, a bunch of, um, of uh, bad guys from the tribe of Benjamin, they come knocking to say, we saw you bring in a man and his concubine here. Bring the man out. We want to have our way with him, right? This crowd of, of, of men. Well, the master of this house, the old man, says, look, don't, don't do anything with him. He's my guest. I have a virgin daughter and this guy's concubine. Have your way with them instead. Like, no, we want the guy, the Levite that's in your house. Well, they end up essentially throwing the concubine out there. Um, You know, she is raped by these men uh, all night. When the master comes out and when the, the Levite comes out, she is dead. All right? The Levite... Cuts her body up and sends it all throughout Israel, saying, Benjamin has done this wicked thing. So the 11 other tribes are super mad, <laughs> and they basically line up to fight the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin, though, doesn't want to give up that group of guys, doesn't want to admit, doesn't want to give up those group of guys. So they're on the, the cusp of war, um, but finally, 
uh, Benjamin relents. Now, again, you're going to think, well, who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? Nobody's the good guy. This is the time of the judges. This is why it's such an awful period of history. That's why it's so, um, that, that's some of the fruit of them not rooting out all of the evil and wickedness in the time of Joshua. You get stories like that. But Benjamin is sort of at the, the heart of that. It's almost a senseless act because they're going to fight. As the smallest tribe, in order to defend these guys, who did a horrible and wicked thing, they were going to fight a civil war with their brothers' tribes in the promised land, and they're supposed to be the people of God. (laughs) This is the people of God. So, you know, Sunday mornings, when I was saying, like, you know, Israel kind of failed to do that, I mean, they spectacularly failed to be the people of God. When you have things like that happening, and that's why God had to raise up judges, and then, of course, those judges were imperfect humans, and then later God will have to present a true king who is going to properly lead his people by becoming the sacrifice for the sins of his people. Anyway, it's jumping ahead of the story, but that's, that's the kind of thing Benjamin does, <laughs> all right? Um, it, it's not a good thing at all. Um, it's, it's, it, it kind of makes sense like a ravenous wolf um, in the morning devouring the prey. But what is this then about at evening dividing the spoil? What does dividing the spoil mean? Well, that's often an image of after a conflict, right? After a war, after a battle where you have defeated your enemies, you'd go and, hey, if they have leftover, you know, food or, or clothes or whatever, you would divide the victory spoils amongst yourself. So, you know, generally it's a, a blessed thing to divide the spoil. It means you won. It means that you have enough. And it says uh, dividing the spoil, that means they're sharing. So they're, they're going to be blessed and they will be a blessing to others. So is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, that sounds more positive. So I think in our before and after, if morning and evening represents a before and after, it's going from a bad situation to a good situation. So that's my take on it. I mean, commentators are a little bit split because it's a really kind of bizarre thing. You know, you're blessing your, <laughs> your, your children, you know, ravenous wolf, you're devouring the prey, divide the spoils. You know, what are you supposed to do with that? But I think it is a promise, a prophecy of, um, of, of some evil and wicked things happening, but then blessing coming from that. Well, uh, as it turns out, there are a few notable people that come from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, one of them is King Saul. Uh, another one of them is Queen Esther. Yeah, he was. He was. We'll get to that. That's exactly the point. Uh, we also have Queen Esther, who is a, a good queen, but she's not ever a queen of Israel. She's a queen of Persia, actually. Um, but she was a tribe of Benjamin and Saul. Saul, the apostle, who became Paul, the apostle, I should say, was also from the tribe of Benjamin, as he, as he said in Philippians chapter 3, as one of the things that he boasted about. Saul became Paul the no, no, no. Uh, no, no. So those are separated by like a thousand years. Okay, so King Saul and uh, Apostle Paul, whose name was Saul, they just share the name and the fact that they're both from the tribe of Benjamin. So you even see, like, even though King Saul was not a very good king, the the tribe of Benjamin still honored and revered King Saul. Even though he was not a good king, even though David was clearly the true king of Israel, Saul was still revered by Benjaminites such that they named their children Saul still, even a thousand years later. Like, you don't name your kids, you know, Hitler, you know, so... So, well, it's, it's just, I think it has to kind of do with that prophecy of, you know, Benjamin, you're a ravenous wolf. 
You know, it's just still part of their identity, their, um, that they are um, applauding and uh, lifting up folks who are not really good, you know, people, right? So uh, I think just part of who they are, it sounds like, in their character. But King Saul, as you just said, was a false king. He's a leader who abused his position. He selfishly ruled over the people. He tried to deny and kill the first true king of Israel, David. Um, and his pride and his ego were always seeking to be filled and satisfied. And he eventually dies a very shameful death on the battlefield. Um, and, and so he really is not even mentioned hardly at all in the rest of the Bible, even though he was like kind of the first king, not the first true king, but he's kind of the first king of Israel. But on the other hand, you have Saul the Pharisee, who was in very many ways very similar to that man. He was proud in his position and his achievements. Um, He was using his life and his status to deny and kill the followers of the king of kings, Jesus, the Messiah. He was very much, if you had to describe who he was, you would very much use, uh, yeah, he's a ravenous wolf seeking to devour his prey, those Christians, He hated them. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and he wanted to, in his zeal for the Lord, destroy all Christians. But the grace of God came to him. He repented. He had that moment on the road to Damascus, and he spent the rest of his life serving, giving, pouring out his life as a blessing to others, sacrificing himself frequently in discomfort, almost always being persecuted either by Jews, Gentiles, or Christians, so-called Christians, and he died what might have seemed like a pointless, shameful death. He was beheaded. But by it, as church history tells us anyway, he actually ended up testifying to the ruler of the Roman Empire that Jesus is God. Saul turned Paul, his life and ministry and suffering was used to spread the good news of Jesus to the world. Truly blessed, truly blessing others, a true Benjaminite, dividing the spoils, meaning that he had received the greatest treasure of all, Jesus Christ. And he shared that with the world. I mean, we wouldn't be here without uh, him and how Paul or how God used him. And so we see this contrast between King Saul, who on paper seems like he'd be the more impressive figure in the Bible, the the Benjaminite that we should, you know, you would think we should be lifting up and praising as the first king and all these things. But instead, which which, which Benjaminite do we know better? The humble one, the one that the Lord used, who began as a ravenous wolf devouring the prey, but became one who divided the spoils, who shared what the Lord had given him. So I, I think that's an interesting uh, kind of correlation or story with the tribe of Benjamin there. Um, we can talk more about it. There's a lot, you know, there's a little bit more that goes on with the tribe of Benjamin, but uh, I think that's not f- coincidental things. You know, King Saul and Saul, the apostle, um, these are not coincidences, but even um, when Jacob made that prophecy, he was um, being used by the Lord. And actually, when we get to the end, kind of all the allotments, we'll talk about how the um, the Israelites as a tribe show up again way later in the book of Revelation. So we might do a little bit of eschatology at that point. So 
those are just some things that stood out to me in the book of Joshua chapter 18. If there's anything that stood out to you, we'd love to share and talk about that uh, over dinner if you're planning to stick around. Um, I think, again, we have enough food, so let me pray a blessing on the food, and uh, we'll, we'll um, enjoy the rest of our evening together. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for your word. I, I thank you when there's anything I can learn that just turns my heart towards you and towards your grace and mercy, towards uh, how to live. Um, a Christian life. And I pray, Lord, that especially just thinking of um, of those who I often hear saying they've hit a little bit of a rut or a routine who uh, might be having a dry spell in their faith, that uh, you would remind us of some of those exciting promises in your word that motivate obedience and love towards you. And pray also that uh, you'd give us um, wisdom uh, like Joshua to know how to address those situations of life, especially as they keep coming so fast and from so many different angles and things that, you know, in a way no Christian has ever faced before. And But in another way, they're all just variations of the same theme, that we are lost sinners that need forgiveness um, by the one who made us. And so Lord, help us to understand and navigate the times we live in by your grace, and uh, help us to remember the example of um, between Saul, King Saul, and uh, Saul the the apostle. So, Lord, all glory to you. Bless our time together. Bless the food that we have before us. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Well, you're all invited.